I want to make a proposition here at the beginning, and then I want us to flesh it out through the context of Acts 17, okay? Uh, and here's my proposition for us. Our hearts, our lives, I say hearts, I'm not talking about the anatomical hearts, the, the emotive presence inside of us, the thing that we feel things from. Our hearts only have room enough for one king. There's only one throne in our hearts, okay? I do believe that doesn't mean we can't love multiple things. I love Amanda. I love Hudson. I love Miles. Um, But our hearts have room for one throne. There's one thing. Um, I've searched the world. It couldn't fill me. And this this is the story of humanity, uh, next one, Matt. Oh, I'm seeing two back there. Okay, next one. Um, man's empty praise, treasures that's fa- that fade. It's never enough. That's the next line. Um, and th- these two things, I think, sum up the human experience. That we are searching and searching and searching and searching constantly for something to occupy that space inside of us on the throne of our hearts. Uh, and we'll try lots of different things, but like I said, the proposition is we only have room for one throne in our hearts, and so we're constantly giving our allegiance to a particular thing, be it an identity you define for yourself, uh, be it um, some sort of possession you own, uh, be it uh, some sort of status or situation or, or, or place in life, uh, But we are searching and searching and searching, and I would propose this morning that anything that I'm going to go ahead and just like put my cards on the table, anything that you put on that throne that is not the person of Jesus is going to leave you feeling holy and utterly and totally dissatisfied, is not going to be enough. And so in Acts 17, we get a picture, and the stories aren't connected uh, aside from being in the same chapter. But I think they point us toward some cultural realities that we experience today. And, and they're cultural realities that I've seen seep even into the church. That um, this is what it means to be a Jesus follower. And we try and put other things on the throne of our hearts. And ultimately, it leaves us feeling empty. So I want to look at a couple different situations in Acts 17. I want to identify with us uh, what it means, like what are the things being put on the throne of those people's hearts? What does that look like for us today? And then Paul at the end gives an eloquent sermon that I don't really need to add much to um, because it just, he lays out the gospel in light of these things. So Acts 17, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) Acts 17, uh, I'm just going to hop around. Our bulk's going to be at the end, but verse 2 and 3. Paul goes and goes to Thessalonica, and as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, so three weeks in a row, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. And Paul says, this is Jesus that I am proclaiming to you. He is the Messiah. So he goes into the synagogue, the Jewish places of worship, and he uh, says, like, Jesus 
is the Messiah. See, the Jews had been waiting on a savior to redeem and restore Israel back into God's promises. And they called him the Messiah, the redeemer, the one who would save them. And they were waiting and holding out hope and they had begun to construct these things in their heads of what it would look like. See, a lot of Jewish people thought it would be like a conquering king, like someone who was going to come be a military figure who was going to overtake the Roman government that was oppressing them and they were having to live under the rule and authority of. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene and he's none of those things, instead of being proud and attacking, he's humble and gentle. We talk about a lot of times Jesus' phrase where he says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Um, And so he's none of the things they were expecting. And uh, then he uh, is crucified because he's claiming to be the the thing that they're waiting on, but it doesn't look like the the things they're expecting. Uh, But then we know and put our hope in the fact that he rose from the dead. And uh, that made our position with Jesus, our position with God, with the creator of the universe, secure again. And, And so they're still Jews that are like, no, it's not Jesus. We're waiting on somebody else. We're waiting on somebody else. And so this rubs them the wrong way. And what we see happen a lot of time in in Acts is the Jews are like, I don't want my hands to be dirty. But they go in and get a bunch of outsiders and they like begin to ruffle some feathers. And uh, so they go get this other guy that's uh, associating with with Christians named Jason. And they uh, go into their house and then they begin to come under pressure from the synagogue and and the religious leaders, and then from the government. And here's what they say in verse 7. They're defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. See, it would have been uh, really common in the first century um, for people to have to take like an oath of allegiance to the, the emperor, the ruler, Caesar. And uh, this is like pretty rabble-rousing language to say that they're saying there's another king. So everyone else here has taken an oath of allegiance to King Caesar, and they're saying, mm, I don't think we really agree with that. We think there's another king. And so they begin to, this really like gets them riled up, and I think it sets the stage for the rest of our conversation in Acts 17. Because again, they're saying uh, these Christians, these people following the way of Jesus, are saying there's another king. So my question for us today is, I think if I pulled Jesus followers in this room, we would all go, yeah, Jesus, king. Thumbs up. We're good with that. But my question, and I had to wrestle through what this looks like for me, is If you examine your life, who does your life point to as king? Or or maybe what does your life point to as king? When you examine the ins and outs, your comings and goings, your, your resting, your thoughts, your processes, your heart, what does your life or who does your life point to as king? You can think about it this way. What are you giving the majority, 51% and up, what are you giving the majority of your time to? What are you giving the majority of your mental capacity to, your thought process? 
what are you giving the majority of, uh, of your resources to? There's a lot of things we could fill in here. One of the things that I had to come to terms with this week as I was praying and, and reading and preparing is one of the things that I crown as king over my life because of time, simply, is Connection Church. That sounds like really good. You probably, as, a, as your pastor, you probably want them to be thinking about the church uh, a good majority of time. But it has a, a, a propensity to leak into the inner parts of my life and have that be the thing that's king. That, that oh, I, I want things to go well and I want, I want everyone to be happy and I want, I want people to be pleased and I, I want us to get along and I want us to agree and I want us to do all this stuff. And before you know it, the majority of my time and my attention has gone to Christ's bride rather than Christ. You can think about it this way for your kids or your spouse, that you're like running them around and you got them plugged into so many good things and there's Bible studies and there's sports teams and, and, and there's clubs and there's activities and all this good stuff. And in the pursuit of the good, we miss the better. We miss the best. What are we crowning as king over our lives. So today gives us a really good opportunity to examine, just real quick, a couple things in Acts chapter 17 uh, of where people are giving a misguided authority and allegiance. And they're not necessarily bad things. They're just not perfect things. They're never going to be able to sustain the weight that you need a king to sustain. All throughout scripture, uh, we, we see Jesus kind of pointed to as the king. Uh, and, and when I say Jesus is king, we can get lost a little bit because we don't live, live in a, a monarchy. Um, but like when I say Jesus is king, I mean Jesus has full rule and dominion over creation. He's ruling and reigning and sustaining even now. He has authority over all things. He redeemed all things and is redeeming all things. Uh, Colossians says all things were made by him and for him. So Jesus as king is just this picture of Jesus as ruler and reigner over everything. To understand Jesus as king is to understand that his power reigns supreme, that he reigns supreme. He's ruler of the universe. He sustains it. He redeems it. So there's a couple things uh, uh, that I want to look at uh, where people are giving just misguided allegiance. And I think I see it in us too, okay? So first thing is the, the people in Thessalonica, and I understand there was some bad characters mixed up in the equation, but it comes straight from verse 7. It says, they are all defying Caesar's decrees of allegiance to Caesar, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. And here's the first thing that I see uh, super culturally relevant for us, okay? Here's, here's a thing that I see people giving their allegiance to, and that's, that's the government. This, the, the world we live in today, I see people giving their allegiance to the form of government, uh, 
the person that oversees the government, whoever sits in the presidential seat, whoever has the Senate or the House, whoever, whoever is uh, in charge or has authority, I see a lot of stuff rise and fall on our emotions and, and rise and fall on, on how we pr- engage with the world regardless of who sits in those seats of authority or power or whatever. And I think, uh, I think we can look back on this, and I think it's a, a fairly similar situation where they're going, they're saying there's another king, meaning they're not giving the totality of their allegiance to Caesar. A group of people who are opposed to Jesus, uh, this, is, this is a group of people who are opposed to Jesus' kingship because they're like, he's not the person we're waiting on, we're waiting on uh, someone else. Now, allegiance is one of those really tricky things for us. Because I think at its core, allegiance means like this is where the buck stops. This is where the buck stops. Uh, Meaning if I say I'm giving my allegiance to something, that means that is the highest thing that I am prioritizing in my life. I don't think it's possible, if we want to get super semantical, I don't think it's possible to pledge or give allegiance to two things. Here's why. If you say, no, I give all of my allegiance to thing number one, and then you say, and I give all of my allegiance, again, we're just breaking down semantics here, all of my allegiance to thing number two, what happens when thing number one and thing number two diverge and go in opposite directions? You you have to choose. I remember one time I was... uh, interviewing at a church, and this was like going to be fresh out of college. And uh, I sit down with the, the interview committee, and it's just super clear afterwards I was not ready to be a lead pastor. And we sit down. This is a small congregation, very sweet people. And uh, they go, we're eating lunch. I preach a sermon, eating lunch afterwards. And they go, all right, question number one during this interview process. And I'm just so grateful my process here was not. Nothing like this, because they go, did you know this, and are you okay with this? We actually belong to and submit to the authority of two different denominations. And I was like, no, I didn't know that. In fact, that's, that's wild. How do, you, how do you do that? And uh, what had happened was, like in the 1800s, there was these two denominations in, inside the churches of God, and there was a split at one point. And it was just over some theological issues and nothing, honestly, that major. And they were holding out hope that at one point they would merge back together in this beautiful picture of unity. I was like, I think we've, it's the 1800s. I think think the ship has sailed for that. And uh, I was like, okay, well, what do you do if denomination number one is like, we really want you to pay off your mortgage? We think that's a good move for you to to do. And denomination number two is like, uh, we really, we're going all in on missions and we need you to double your missions budget. And they're like, well, we'll just do both. And I was like, there's 30 of you here. You won't do both. That's not, that's not how this works. And, and I think that is, that is what we see here uh, with allegiance specifically, as we're talking about in verse 7, specifically to uh, authority figures or things of government. You can say, yes, I, I uh, am backing this and backing this. But at the end of the day, allegiance means the highest priority you're giving to. Like you will give your life for this particular thing. You will run after this particular thing. 
And it, it doesn't make sense to the world around us to live a life like this, to say, no, I'm not pledging allegiance to any form of government or any politician or anything like that. It doesn't make sense to us because that is the world we see around us. So, it, but it was just as subversive then as it is now. Because the accusation brought against them is they're not obeying Caesar. They, they, they look at the emperor who's got this like strong authority and, and, and they're saying, well, we don't really, like, sure, we'll, we'll honor you in your position, but we, we're not going to give our allegiance to you. We're worshiping Jesus as our king. So this is, a, this is an opportunity as we look at this. I think this is an opportunity for us as Jesus followers in 2023. To, to be different than the world around us. And I think there's a couple things to prioritize from this. And I think the first thing is, is we really have to check ourselves often. We have to check ourselves often with, uh, are we worshiping, or, or if I can take it a step further, are we idolizing particular people? particular forms of government, particular processes, particular ideologies or, or thoughts or ideas? Are we, are we idolizing those things? Because that's, that's incompatible with following Jesus. Our allegiance is to Jesus as our king. And so how much time and talent and attention and our treasures are we giving to particular modes of government or individuals in government? And it can go all the way. If you are sitting and obsessing over who is going to be the next president of the United States, this is just unfaithful to the way of Jesus. If, you were, if every second is like Fox News, CNN, what's happening? What's going on here? This just is not what's laid out here. That is idolizing Particular people or, or, or forms of government. That's idolizing Caesar. That's putting Caesar as king because that's what you're giving the, the majority of your time, talent, and attention to. And it can, so it can go all the way from like the highest forms of government to like you can be consumed with your HOA. You can. Are you constantly like worried about like, oh, they're putting up a fence? I don't know if that conforms with the, the bylaws and the covenants we got back here. Someone's going to have to have an awkward conversation. And, and you just get like worked up and you're constantly thinking about it and you're constantly worried about it. It's this constant, like it's, it, it spans the spectrum. Jesus is our king. Everything else is secondary and not even a close second. Not even like, a, well, there's Jesus and then there's the President of the United States. Or there's Jesus and then there's the House of Representatives. Or there's Jesus and then there's the County Treasurer or whatever. Like, it's not even a close second. It is Jesus as King that we give our priority and our time and our attention to and everything else. Yeah, sure, get involved. Be, be a part of the process. But there's some serious checks we can have in our heart for how much time, talent, attention we're giving to. So don't idolize or worship our government as king. But then when we do that, I tell you, it, it sets the stage because that is all anybody does anymore, it seems like. 
that you can't have a conversation. I go to the barber shop and it's just nonstop. You can't have a conversation without these things seeping in. And so what if us as Jesus followers, what if in being subversive and going, you know, we worship Jesus as king and everything else is just, we just kind of trust God and see what happens. And what if instead you get to engage in conversations? Because I tell you, that is different than the people that I talk to. That is just whole cloth different. To be so unbothered and unworried and go, yeah, and the world's a mess, I tell you. We're never going to get a person in there that solves all of our problems. We're never going to get a president of this HOA that makes this a perfect subdivision to live in. But by golly, uh, I'm just so thankful to live in a community where I can engage with people. And people are like, people don't know what to do with that. Jesus is our king. <laughs> Over any governmental authority or structures or anything like that. Jesus is our king. Here's the second thing. Paul goes on uh, to Athens, and uh, we see, um, and this starts in verse uh, <coughs> 16. Uh, let me just read a couple of verses, okay? Verse 16 says, while Paul, uh, he's in Athens, was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day, to those who happen to be there. What we see then laid out in, in, while Paul is in Athens it, is uh, Paul engaging with popular uh, thought processes of the day. So the, here's a couple things, and I see them. I, I see them in our culture. They're so prevalent. You have uh, worshiping government, modes of government as king. And then the other thing I see is worshiping like popular philosophy or, or theorizing or stuff like this is king. Like that's the highest thing we can give our allegiance to. Paul encounters a few people in Athens. He encounters the Jews. We talked about them at the beginning. They're waiting on the Messiah. They're waiting on the promised Savior. He encounters uh, some philosophers that are Epicurean. And uh, Epicureans basically believe that the cosmos, the, the universe was just a result of like cosmic accident. That we're all here just by mere chance. And isn't it a miracle that you and I get to exist together? Just mere chance. Uh, and if there are a God, a gods or there is a God, what they believed is like, yeah, sure, they might be out there. I don't know. I can't say for sure. I've never seen them, but I've never not seen them. Uh, and so if there is a God out there, they're just completely undisturbed by human existence. This is the Epicureans. Uh, oh, and, and it's also, this is, this is gonna, you're gonna have some questions like, is this 2023? Is this first century? Because uh, they, Epicureans believe that pleasure doing things that they enjoyed was the, the foundation of a good human existence. Having fun is what it means to have a good life, enjoying yourself. <clears throat> and then the last one was the Stoics. And the Stoics believed that the world was 100% totally only material and that there was no supernatural whatsoever. Meaning the world only consists of what you can see and taste and touch and experience. And if there is some sort of veiled super, like there, there, there is no sort of veiled supernatural on the other side of reality. It's just only humans living freely, 
responsible for the construction of morality. And honestly, like I said, I could have laid this stuff out at the beginning and you could have been like, oh, he's just like, this is a cultural commentary on, on where the world exists today. You have people who are looking for someone to save them, just like the Jews, going, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I need someone to save me. Like the Epicureans, you have people who are unwilling to acknowledge a creator, that the world is just a a result of cosmic chance and how lucky are we that it all happened the way that it happened. And then you have people that are unwilling to acknowledge the spiritual, that like the the world is uh, just purely material and what we experience, there's nothing beyond that. And as a result, they are unwilling to acknowledge Jesus in his proper place, as king, as ruler, is Lord, sovereign and good, is loving and, and just and merciful and over all things. <clears throat> so what is Paul's response to these people that are saying either, no, you're not worshiping the right thing, you're, you're, you're pledging allegiance to Jesus and not Caesar, and what's he saying to the people who are, who are idolizing and going, no, you don't have the right philosophy, you don't have the right thought process, you don't have the right, what does Paul say to them? And we're going to pick up in verse uh, 22, okay? Paul stood in the meeting of Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very things you worship. And that is what I'm going to proclaim to you. What I love here, in the responses to these two things, it's not anger, Paul's not getting all fired up that they're worshiping the wrong thing. He's connecting with them on a personal level going, you guys are, are, are religious. I, I see that in you. You're hungering and thirsting. You're running after the wrong thing. We can see the word ignorant in there and put it into our modern context. And like, that's a pre- if I call some of, one of you in this room ignorant, that's a pretty loaded term. Let's, let's strip all of that off. It's just, Paul's just saying like, you're saying you're worshiping something that you don't know what it is. Let me tell you what it is. He goes on to explain instead of getting fired up and, and getting bent on being a culture warrior and like, no, we're going we're gonna to run after these things and how dare you not acknowledge God as the creator of the universe. He goes, let me just tell you about it. <coughs> Verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. And this is such a beautiful reminder for us that in both cases, in the cases of uh, the government and Caesar and in the cases of the temples of philosophy and thought and reason, that God doesn't need either of those things to be king. He just is king because of who he is. It reminds me of uh, Psalm 24, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it because he founded it. Like he made it, Colossians. All things were made by him and for him. So he's saying the God who made everything in the world does not, he doesn't live or exist inside of the constructs that we've made as humans. He's so much bigger than that. And I am so grateful that the God that we worship is so much bigger than that. I'm grateful that there is mystery wrapped up into the divine. 
Because I, I am not that bright. If I could fully understand the God that I worship, I don't think that's a God worthy of worship because I can't put together a lot going on up here. Like that's, it's just, that's not that good of a God, one that I can conceive. And, and what Paul's saying is he's so much bigger than the constructs that we make. From verse 26, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their hands, of their lands. <clears throat> God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And this is the goal we talked about at the beginning. This is the goal of all of life, that we are searching for something to fulfill the deepest longings of our heart. And the, the deepest longing of our heart, whether we identify it or not, is to be reunited and connected with the creator of us and of all things. And when people don't honor or follow God, they're just, it's just a misaligned. So they have this idol that says to an unknown God. And Paul's going, I can tell you who that God is. He's the one who made it all. He's the one who sustains it all. And he wants you to find him. He's not playing hard to get and, and, and ducking around and going, you'll never be able to find me. He wants you to find him. And he wants you to worship him as king because he's good. It's so good to have an ordered life it, it ordered in the proper way that God intended. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone constructs of human hands as an image made of human design and skill. <clears throat> in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. <clears throat> and he has given proof of this so that everyone, uh, to, to everyone by raising him from the dead. So what is our response to misaligned kingship? To misaligned allegiance? Our response, both as Jesus followers and to people who are outside of the fold, our response is Repentance. So Paul's saying, he's, he's calling everywhere, all people, to repent. To say, God, I'm sorry that I have put my trust and I've put my hope and I've put my worship in things that we as humans have constructed. I'm sorry for assuming that you were so small that you could be contained by those things. That you could be contained by forms of government. That you could be contained by leaders. That you could be contained by thought processes or philosophies or things that we could construct. I'm sorry. And God, I want to follow you. I want to, I want to crown you as king of my life. I want you to have the authority. I want you to rule and I want you to reign because you're not a... You're not a, you're not a uh, an evil king, you're a good king, you want the best for me, you want my life to flourish, you want me to be connected with you, and that's what I want, and that's what God is asking from us today, is for repentance. That at the end of the day, everything else that you can put on that throne of your life, that you can give your allegiance to, that you can say, this is the thing I'm giving my life to, every other thing will crumble and fall. It just won't last. But Jesus, as our king, is secure. He's good. He's merciful. He's just. And it's when we give our lives to him as king 
that we begin to see everything else kind of drift away. And we say, God, you are so good. You're so good to want to be in relationship with me. I don't deserve it, but you're so good. And so I want to follow you. So here's what we're going to do with our, our, our last song today. We're just going to, and I think we've done this a few Sundays in a row, but today's song's pretty on the nose. So I'm going to invite the worship team, and we're just going to take an opportunity to proclaim Jesus' kingship, to proclaim that we're uh, trusting in him, that we're surrendering ourselves to him, that we're giving our allegiance to him as king. And, and I want us to use this opportunity for a couple things. Uh, we can use this opportunity to be a time of proclamation, of going, this is something I believe, this is something I feel, and I am choosing to proclaim it outwardly to reflect what's, what I believe inwardly. I want us to use this time as a time of repentance, to go, you know what, maybe I've given my life to a lot of other things, and I've already seen them begin to crumble and fall. These philosophies that, that I've given my life to, man, when, when life gets tough, they just don't hold up under the weight. They just can't do it. Uh, the government, it feels shaky. I don't understand it. Uh, and, and so maybe it's a time of repentance, or maybe it's a time of going, I don't think I have ever acknowledged Jesus as the king over my life. And I want us to use this as an opportunity to do that. So I'm going to invite you to stand. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to proclaim this truth together. Jesus, we are so thankful. We're thankful that you are a good and a kind and a just and a, and a gracious and a merciful king. Forgive us of the just many things that we put on the throne of our hearts, but today we want to put you there in your rightful place as ruler and reigner and sustainer. Jesus, we, we recognize there's a million things we can give our lives to, but you are the only thing that is sure and secure. So we love you, and we do, we surrender, we humble ourselves before you now. Ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.